morning. My name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. Now this week the violence in North America has been making headlines all the way around the world following the unlawful killing of George Floyd and it's a, a painful reminder, isn't it, of just how broken our world is. In uh, all the media coverage, uh, I was very struck by the courage of one African-American uh, man trying to calm a violent mob and telling them to find a better way. Uh, the video of his message has gone viral and surely one of the reasons for that is that as people look at all the brokenness all around them that they're looking for a better way. Well the better way that they're seeking is the theme of our series in Mark's Gospel uh, which is an introduction to the Christian message. I do hope that our talk today will be an encouragement to you to find that better way and if you come away from it with questions won't you please visit our website www.sbbc.org.za and on the home page you'll find a tab where you can leave your contact details and we'll get back to you in the course of the week. But uh, now as we begin can I invite you to open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 and I'll be reading from verse 18. Gospel of Mark chapter 2 reading from verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Well, just so far... Uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. And so we pray now for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills that put it into practice. For the glory of your name we ask it. Amen. Now, in our series, uh, Mark has shown us that when Jesus came into the world, he did many very wonderful things, healing people, helping people. But uh, at the same time, there was a dark cloud of opposition growing against him. So just when Jesus is giving many tremendous things, he's also facing tremendous hostility. So two weeks ago, we read about the man on the mat being lowered through the roof. Uh, and you remember Jesus looks at him and says, you're forgiven. And some of the people sitting there say, how dare he say this? Uh, there's kind of an anger. There's a hostile reaction. Well, cast your mind back to last week when Jesus calls Levi 
Uh, he goes back to Levi's house for a meal with lots of tax collectors and uh, the critics say, well, why on earth is he eating with such dreadful people? And uh, in our passage today, Jesus fails to observe a religious ritual. Uh, it's an arbitrary man-made ritual and uh, the critics watching him are saying, in effect, how can he possibly be a good man? So when we meet Jesus Christ in the pages of the New Testament, we see two things that seem to be contradictory. On the one hand, uh, we see the freest man the world has ever known. He doesn't have any unbelief, he doesn't have any doubts, uh, he doesn't have any anxieties, he doesn't have any fears. Uh, therefore, there's a lot we can learn from him. But at the same time, we also see in Jesus someone who is a serious threat especially to those people who build their lives on religion because if you build your life on religion and keeping a set of religious rules Jesus will expose that as a faulty foundation for your life and whenever Jesus exposes a faulty foundation people get angry, people get upset and of course that's still the case today uh, let me give you an example from my own experience. At one stage in my business career, uh, we had to relocate to a part of the UK we didn't know very well, and uh, we began to look for a church to join, and soon came across a traditional old church building about five minutes away from where we were living. Uh, the service was very traditional, nothing wrong with that. The choir and the pastor were all robed up, it's strange but there was nothing wrong with that the people seemed friendly that was an encouragement but the sermon well that was the problem it was less than 10 minutes and uh, the pastor made no attempt to explain and apply the Bible hoping things might get better we kept going for the next few Sundays but if anything the sermons were even shorter and uh, it gradually began to dawn on us that the congregation weren't actually expecting to hear God's word at all. They wanted religious liturgy. They came for that. They wanted a religious experience. They came for that. But they didn't want the Bible. They didn't want to hear from God's word. In fact, there were no Bibles in the church. And uh, when I contacted the pastor offering to help with the purchase of a few Bibles for the church, he became rather irritated and said, no, that really won't be necessary. Now, in our passage this morning, the question that's raised is a religious question about fasting. It's not obviously a hostile question, and yet that, of course, is where things are heading. Because next week, when we get to chapter 3 and verse 6, we're going to see that people are already planning to kill Jesus. He's hardly got started, and already people want to get rid of him. So if you perhaps think that Jesus died suddenly and perhaps randomly, rather weirdly, at the end of his life, as if the crowd suddenly and unpredictably turned upon him, you need to know that the hostility against Jesus was building right from the start. So I want us to think about the message of our five verses this morning under three headings. First of all, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ secondly the futility of rules based religion and third the test 
that shows where we stand the joy the futility the test so firstly the joy of knowing Christ please look with me at chapter 2 verse 18 uh, where we read don't we that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and some people came and asked Jesus about this because while the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting the disciples of Jesus were not now the Old Testament law said that you were to fast once a year and you can read about that in Leviticus 16 which describes the uh, worship that God was expecting on the Day of Atonement but over the years the Pharisees had taken the requirement in Leviticus 16 and intensified it so that instead of fasting one day a year they said that people should fast twice a week Mondays and Thursdays in addition um, people would fast occasionally on a voluntary basis under special circumstances such as perhaps the death of a loved one uh, or perhaps some national tragedy and here it is possible that the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting because John had been put in prison and it's possible that the Pharisees were fasting in order to speed up the coming of the Messiah to deliver Israel from the Romans now that would of course be rather ironic because the Messiah is standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus but at this point in Mark's book very few people know who Jesus really is and so the question comes to Jesus in verse 18 why don't your disciples fast as well and Jesus replies how can you expect the friends of the bridegroom to be acting as if it's a funeral that's a very clever answer uh, nobody could possibly get upset with Jesus for saying this because on one level all Jesus seems to be saying is look if I'm with my friends uh, why can't we have a good time but for those people who know their Old Testament this is a loaded loaded comment Isaiah 54 verse 5 says your maker is your husband the Lord Almighty is his name Isaiah 62 verse 5 says as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride so will your God rejoice over you now there are just two examples of an important theme running all the way through the Old Testament that God is the bridegroom of his people and in our passage Jesus says I'm the bridegroom in other words I am your God now when you remember that Mark chapters 1 to 8 are answering the question who is Jesus who is this person you can see that this is a very clear answer to that question for those with ears to hear Jesus is saying I am God I am the bridegroom and the big surprise here is that whilst Israel had been waiting for the Messiah they never thought for one moment that the Messiah would be God that the one who would come to save Israel would be God himself the Old Testament never makes that explicit connection but that's precisely what Jesus says here so 
the liberal scholars and pastors who for years have been saying look Jesus is just a man get over it he's merely human well they've obviously not grappled with the evidence because Jesus speaks about himself again and again and again as the God of the Old Testament he says I am the light of the world I am the good shepherd I am the bridegroom see when Jesus is telling people who he is he often uses the same language that the Old Testament uses to describe God himself the other thing that strikes me about this is that the answer Jesus gives is so quick I wonder if you noticed that I think one of the things that's so deeply impressive about Jesus is his ability to respond to any attack with an answer that is infinitely better than anything his enemies could come up with it would take me uh, days to think of an answer even half as brilliant as the answers that Jesus gives to his enemies uh, if you can do this I think it's a very useful skill uh, last year our friend VJ Menon came to visit us and uh, VJ has two sons both of whom are involved in ministry and uh, on one occasion uh, a member of the church council challenged one of VJ's sons to make his sermons shorter I can't remember the precise details but the general idea was 15 minutes is more than enough and without even pausing for breath VJ's son said this thank you for your feedback but whilst I am your servant you are not my master what a brilliant, brilliant answer that is it shows humility I am your servant but it also shows a line that needs to be drawn you are not my master and it was so quick now look at what Jesus says here as he's put on the spot with a difficult question why don't you fast and quick as a flash he says I am the bridegroom his answer is attractive um, it's unanswerable and it's full of challenge because Jesus takes an Old Testament picture of God and he says this is me and then he says in verse 20 of course when the bridegroom is taken away my disciples will fast now that of course is a very clear prediction of his arrest and crucifixion if you think about what he says it's very strange uh, what a weird thing to take a bridegroom away who on earth would do that but of course this is going to happen and Jesus is telling the people who are already in opposition against him that they're actually going to the extent uh, they're going to go to the extent of removing him from the face of the earth and I think it reminds us that one of the things we need to know about Christ is that people either receive him so think of Levi and his friends who said uh, come to our place uh, come into our lives we want to follow you or they reject him as Jesus predicts that they will do in verse 20 now I think it's very interesting in our world today that people have no legitimate criticism about Jesus they have nothing bad to say about him but even though they recognise his perfection our, will, our world has no place for Jesus it's actually one of the great incriminating realities of our culture 
that people who have nothing but praise for Jesus want nothing whatever to do with him. It's odd, but it's true. Now, of course, we know the opposition to Jesus is heating up. We all know that. But the opposition lacks any rational basis for its hostility. So think about this. As the COVID-19 crisis and disease sweeps through our communities, there are going to be lots of funerals in South Africa. And funerals are always sad. But you see, a funeral is also an opportunity for the people left behind to consider whether there is any answer in Christ to the sadness that they're dealing with. They've lost someone they love. It's final and it's sad. But it's also an opportunity to consider if when Jesus says, I hold the keys of life and death, that he means it and that he can do something about it. Over the years I've spoken at a number of funerals and I've always given people an invitation to come and ask me afterwards about the claims of Jesus Christ. And what I've discovered is that yes, people will happily come and talk after the sermon but they'll talk about anything and everything except Jesus Christ. And the reason is, he's simply too much of a threat. So notice please that verses 19 and 20 are actually a summary of the whole message of Christ. Verse 19, who is he? He's the bridegroom. He's God come into his world. Verse 20, what has he come to do? Well, he's come to be taken away. And by being taken away, he will pay for our sins on the cross in order to save his people, giving them new life now, a life full of meaning and purpose, and a wonderful hope for the future. Now that is the joy and the freedom of knowing Christ. But secondly, I want us to consider the futility of rules-based religion. Because Jesus goes on here to tell two little parables. They're the first parables in Mark's book. Effectively, Jesus says, don't put new cloth on old cloth. Don't put new wine into old wineskins. Notice firstly that Jesus is familiar with ordinary everyday life. He can discuss uh, sowing, storing wine, building a building, farming a field, accounting, warfare, fishing. You name it, Jesus can talk about it. He understands the world. He's utterly familiar with the details of your day-to-day. Nothing is going to take Jesus by surprise. Notice also how accessible these parables are. These are not upper-class parables. These are not stories for the elite. Jesus doesn't tell stories about fashion walkways or restaurants or smart holidays. No, Jesus talks about the essential stuff in normal everyday life. So if you lived in Jesus' day, you might have two shirts if you were lucky. So sewing was a big part of life. And if you lived in Jesus' day, you needed cheap wine because the water supply was dodgy. So Jesus is talking here 
to the normal people of the world about normal everyday things. And they seem to be terribly simple parables. Indeed, you might possibly be thinking, move on, Simon, this is very obvious. Jesus is bringing something new and we mustn't try and box it in. And that, of course, would be an entirely legitimate application of the parables. But at the risk of confusing you and in the hope of stimulating you, I want to ask whether there aren't, in fact, two sides to these stories. Are these parables a two-edged sword? So stay with me here because I want to suggest to you that Jesus is also saying that some new things are bad. Jesus says don't put new cloth on old cloth. Don't put new wine into old wineskins. Some new is bad. Now in our world we're used to hearing people say that old is bad. Old is yesterday's news, uh, old is finished, new is wonderful. But you'll notice the background here, which is that the Pharisees have introduced a new rule. You must fast twice a week. And it's the, the new teaching which is doing damage to God's people. And as the new cloth and the new wine have a, a tearing and a bursting effect, this new rule is damaging. It's doing destructive work. And uh, in the parables, the people who are adding the new elements, the, the new cloth and the new wine, well, they're obviously silly. Because everybody knows that no one would put new cloth on old cloth. And no one would put new wine into old wineskins. It's ridiculous. Everybody knows that. So I wonder if what we're meant to see in these stories is that Jesus stands for an old message. An old message of grace, of life, uh, of covenant, of bridegroom, of bride. And that the relationship between God and us is held together by grace and not by rules. Because, you see, if that is the case, then these two parables are actually anticipating a danger that's going to wreck the church for centuries. And that danger is adding ritual and rules to what ought to be a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. So here in these parables, we have a preview of the heresy that we're going to read about later in the New Testament in the book of Galatians, where you remember they were trying to add ritual to Christ in order to get right with God. We have a preview of what we're going to see about the law in the letter to the Romans, in Philippians, and in Revelation. And we all also have an early warning here against trying to be saved by church sacraments, fasting. You know, as if anybody could get saved by church sacraments. So what we have here, you see, is the human tendency to try and make our own performance into a way of making peace with God, all the time neglecting grace and the work of Christ. So it may well be that in these parables, Jesus is warning that in certain things, new is actually bad, because it is. However, 
Uh, the major lesson of these parables is that the kind of new that Jesus brings is very wonderful because there's no doubt that Jesus has brought in a new day so cast your mind back to his first words in chapter 1 what did he say the time has come the kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news and we'd be very blind this morning if we looked at these parables and failed to see that Jesus has brought in the age which the Old Testament was looking forward to uh, let me remind you of a couple of these Old Testament predictions uh, you don't need to look them up but Isaiah 25 the Lord will prepare a feast of wine Jeremiah 31 they will rejoice in the grain and the new wine Joel chapter 3 the mountains will drip with new wine Amos chapter 9 the new wine will drip from the mountains so you see here the Old Testament is pointing forward to a day when the Messiah will come the kingdom will come and here is Jesus the bridegroom the one who's feasting and he's talking about new wine because you see he's brought that day to earth so that you and I can enter the kingdom by putting our faith in the king and sometime in the future he's going to bring the last day when all of his people will be able to enter into and enjoy his presence forever so the major point in these parables is that Jesus' new day is a very good day indeed the Pharisees might attack him and not like it they might want to control him but they can't because his ministry is going to burst out now of course that's what happened isn't it when Jesus called Levi and Levi said look um, I'm finished with work Christ must come first it's what happened when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and said I'm going to give you living water and from that moment her life changed completely and it's what happened on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter stood up and said to the crowd we're not drunk this is what God promised in the Old Testament so friends now listen to this the message of these two parables the cloth and the wine is quite simply that joyful fellowship with God which is good and hard rules which are not do not mix uh, to bring law into that relationship will wreck it and to reject Jesus in favour of religion will lead to a split that cannot be repaired now Dorothy Sayers was a friend of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien she was a great writer and thinker and I found what she said about this to be really helpful she said and I quote the people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah. 
certified him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. He was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime and there can be nothing dull about God but he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly and officialdom felt that the established order of things would be much more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. End quote. Now that's absolutely right, isn't it? And of course it is still happening today. People are still doing that to Jesus. Which brings us to our third heading this morning. The test that shows where we stand. Because I want to finish this morning by asking, what would the new wine look like if it was running through you? If you belong to Christ and you're part of the bride, married to the bridegroom, and his new life is working away through you, what will that new wine look like? And you might just like to check yourself, as I mention a few things, that are going to characterise the person who's been transformed. First, Jesus Christ will be of greatest importance to you. He's your saviour. He's your Lord. You will have a deep desire for growing fellowship with him. Second, there's a new freedom in your life which Christ has brought you. Because he's freed you from condemnation and he's freed you for very privileged service. So there is a sense in which you're already feasting with him. You're not fasting, you're feasting. And one day you're going to feast forever at his table. Third, his fellowship will shed a very special light on even the darkest of paths. You see, friends, the new life, the new wine, does not free you from trouble. You're going to get opposition for being a keen Christian. You will pay a price for that. And you're going to have the normal struggles of life in a broken world. Disappointments, disease, losses, griefs, anxieties. But however tough it gets, you will know deep down inside that you are never alone. Earlier this year as a church, we learned Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God. You might also like to learn Psalm 63 verse 3, which says his love is better than life. And believers with the new wine understand that. Fourth, there is a gladness which radiates out from a Christian into all parts of life. <clears throat> You're glad to hear that others believe. You're glad to hear that others are growing. You're glad to help them grow when you have an opportunity to do so. And if you've been tight-fisted, you become generous. If you've been spending most of your money on yourself and just a few coins on gospel work, that begins to change. Because, you see, the new wine thinks again and again about all of the wonderful spiritual blessings we've received and it longs to spread those blessings around. Last Sunday morning I mentioned Richard Bagonan, who came here a couple of years ago. Uh, Richard has worked in the City of London for 40 years, and uh, his testimony is uh, 
that until just a few years ago he belonged to what he calls the rotting sponge society. Richard says, I was a sponge. I went to a building, I soaked up a talk, it went nowhere. But 12 years ago, a friend asked me to read the Bible with him. He didn't know where to start, so Richard got his pastor to help him. And the result of that is some booklets with a few simple Bible verses and some simple notes that any Christian can read with a non-believer. And today, (coughs) Richard is reading the Bible with 20 people every week. Now, I'm not saying any of that to put a guilt trip on you because I don't think I could do that many people myself. But Richard says that the question he gets asked more than any other is, why didn't anybody tell me about these things before? Now, that, I think, is a big clue that the interest and the spiritual hunger around us is much greater than you and I might think. And the new wine of Christ looks for ways to get out. Fifth, the new wine keeps avoiding two traps. The trap of rules and regulations which which have a tendency to strangle us and the trap of recklessness where we bring idols into our life that poison our fellowship with Christ. And Christians learn to avoid these two traps. And instead, the new wine looks back to Calvary, where Christ shed his blood, and the new wine looks forward to heaven, where there is a wonderful table prepared for Christ's people. Uh, As Psalm 23 puts it, our cup will be full, our head anointed, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, that's more than enough to think about this week, so let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending into the world the Prince of Peace, who has given us freedom from sin and condemnation and guilt, and freedom for eternal life, fellowship with you, and great joy and we pray this morning that you would give grace to each one of us to appreciate and to benefit from the work of Christ and to help us to live in the freedom and the joy that Jesus brings for it is in his name that we ask it Amen